Also, side point, dueling is illegal in France at this point. Is it illegal? It's definitely illegal under Louis XIV, and I can't imagine that Louis counts or Louis says well, change that. I remember reading about this. I can't remember if it's that it was officially illegal or it was illegal, but for certain ranks of people, it was still done and it was like accepted. I, I don't remember. What oh the God! Was. Don't try to Chris nuance my argument. No, but I'm, I'm sure it's. <laughs> I'm sure it's still in the kind of like it's not like challenging someone to a duel now, which is why which I think. Which is, <laughs> but, but, I mean, this is why I think in the contemporary retellings of it, they don't represent this with a duel between two major characters. Yeah, yeah. I think it's more illegal in the sense of, like, smoking pot is illegal in France. I think that's probably a very good description of what dueling Smoking pot doesn't kill you, so they couldn't make it work. (laughs) (laughs) Dueling was the smoking pot of the 1780s. There's your thesis statement, (laughs) Dennis. Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris. I'm Rachel Kapelkidale. I'm Nafkoti Tambarat. And I'm Chris Newmans. This week in love, we will be delving into the topic of summer flings before our love story of the week, which is the novel Dangerous Liaison, which we, of course, read in French and in English because we are bilingual, charismatic, and you look up to us. We love you too. And now it's time for This Week in Love. This week, Chris Newins tells us what's been on his mind and in his Google box. <laughs> my, my Google box? That's how you refer to it. I'm trying to use language that you would relate to. Don't try to quibble with the terms now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in my Google box this week. Again, the sarcasm unnecessary. We've heard your internet lexicon, okay? <laughs> so, um, you know about um, uh, Kylie Jenner? I- Say her name like I... He said it so hesitantly, yeah. like you weren't quite sure about the pronunciation. I wasn't sure about which gender I... Yeah, this is definitely elder millennials trying it, trying it. Are we going to be talking about the Chalamet of it all? Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. Um... <laughs> yeah. I, I live under a rock and I have heard of well, the Chalamet of it all. So. I don't really know very much about this at all. I, as I understand it, it was a, a like a it's a summer fling. That's about how it's being categorized in the press. So we in the press and amongst yeah. the Shalimar Ding Dongs, uh, <laughs> we are not sure. We're a little bit concerned. It seemed like it was <clears throat> a publicity ploy before, but now they have done two very public kissy time moments. One was at the Renaissance uh, during the Renaissance tour, one of the concerts. I was really hoping you could say Renaissance Fair, and then you did. <laughs> oh, I wish that was the one too. And the other one was something equally public, equally very. It wasn't like the Taylor Swift concert, but it was something like that. I think it was the U.S. Open, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, now I I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it's true love. Maybe it's going to go the distance, whatever. But what really was interesting to me about it was that it was being kind of phrased in in the press as a summer fling mm-hmm. uh, to begin with. Um, for, because for some reason, Timothy Chalamet could never be in a full-on relationship with Kylie Jenner. Um, no, he needs somebody serious, like maybe an English professor of first-year writing <laughs> at the American <laughs> University of Paris. There is something kind of mediatically classist about it, though, right? That somehow Kylie Jenner is 
not good enough for Timothée Chalamet. Yeah. Nobody is. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I could have a go. I, just, <laughs> I mean, this might be arrogant on my part. Like, I, I think me and Timothée, like, I think that like, they wouldn't say that that was a summer fling. Like, if I... Uh... No, you'd be like the classic, like, bear, what would he be? Like, otter? Like, bear otter? <laughs> I, I, I really, really ship this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so anyway, but it, it got me thinking just in general about, like, the idea of summer flings. Um, they only exist in Greece and the media imagination. Well, and this was these were kind of the questions that I wanted to ask. I mean, first of all, are they a real thing? And if they are, what constitutes the perfect summer summer fling? I did Google wiki how as to uh, how you have a summer fling. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, I put myself through grad school writing uh, like those kind of WikiHow uh, articles. And one of my keywords, my favorite one, key phrases, was how to place a television in a corner. <laughs> Let me tell you, Chris, those are not experts writing. <laughs> all right. So do we think we can do better than WikiHow then? Like, I mean, first of all, do you believe in the existence of the summer? F- I mean, have you ever had a summer fling? Um, yes. You have. Yeah, I have yeah. too. Yeah, but I was going to say that I think it's definitely possible. But for me, it was in um, right before college because when I think about a summer fling, it's it's a situation where the two of you will be able to see each other constantly and then leave. Right? Like I think right. leaving immediately and making a clean break of it is really important. So high school, college by necessity is perfect for that. Right? Like you have a summer job, mm-hmm. you go to a different state, whatever. And then you leave. I think it gets a little bit harder and messier when you get older. And also actually because of things like the internet, right? Because of things like social media, it's a lot harder to just be like, we had this fling and now bye. Now we have ghosting, right? Like now it's like there's accountability. There's a trail. They could find you. (laughs) Yeah. I got dark. I agree. I was going to say, I don't think you should be sleeping with somebody that you don't want to find you in the future. (laughs) But then I was going to, where were you when I was 18 years old? I didn't know. I saw me feeling when I was 19 was with somebody that I hated but really wanted to sleep with. And, um, yeah, that's exactly what happened. It's the definition of a summer fling that it has to take place somewhere which is not your home. I think, no, I don't think it has to be by definition, but I think it's a lot harder if it's not, if it's not in a, a separate, like, third location. I think there needs to be kind of an expiration date built into it for it to be a proper summer fling, right? Like it's a summer job, it's um, an internship, study abroad. I feel like study abroad is a solid place to do any sort of fling. Um, if you're going to leave soon, that's built into it. No one, no one has expectations of anything mm-hmm. past it, unless it's like true love or whatever. Yeah. Or counterpoint, following the Greece model, be prepared to turn into whatever that person wants you to be. I um, just I just got bored. Um, <laughs> I had no strong convictions Either or. I was just like, oh, I have to go back to school now. Goodbye. So the first thing is um, expiration date. Yes. Okay. The second thing I suppose I would ask is like the the person who you're having the summer fling with, it, I mean, imagine that you've got some kind of choice. Um, what kind of person are you looking for in the summer fling? So I think you- <laughs> Sorry, imagine we have some kind of choice. What kind of a fucking phrase was that? <laughs> imagine, imagine somebody wants to fuck either of you. <laughs> I know it's a stretch. (laughs) 
Look, you've said a lot of things on this pod, Chris, and you get away with them because of your accent. But that one hurt. <laughs> I'm going to quote W.H. Uh, Auden and say, that the desires of the heart are as crooked as corkscrews. <laughs> like, you don't necessarily get to choose who you fall in love with, is what I meant. Should have said it like that. You get it? <laughs> loved what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I was going to say what you the kind of person you describe, Rachel, I think is actually perfect for any sort of summer fling, right? Someone who's really, really physically attractive. You don't care what they think. They're not funny. They're not smart. Two months, <laughs> perfect. And then you're out. Two months is a long time to be with someone who's not funny and so not the, smart. Well, their hotness has to be extraordinary, right? Like right. They have to be so hot. A great modern twist on it, though. Find someone who has a name which is ungoogleable. Yeah, fucking Chris Newins. You know ungoogleable either of us is. <laughs> Rachel Capel Gidale, there's one. Navkote Tamarat, there is one. We are the ones. You're disposable, and we have thought about this and discussed it. <laughs> I'm still mad <laughs> about the imagine somebody wants to fuck you comment. I think that, um, but maybe change your name into something which is ungoogleable. Why did I first think, <laughs> because we're secretly in love. And I do a good job. <laughs> and you, am I traceable? <laughs> Mine, uh, uh, let's see. <laughs> I think rule three would be to set and uh, maintain expectations. I think it's helpful also if the person you're having a summer fling with has no relation or connection to your usual social circle. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, it's way more fun. Um, and it, and I think, because I think also what I, what I did enjoy about a summer fling was the idea that nobody else knew. Um, I liked the... It's it's kind of a secret, even though it's like a very low stakes secret, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, them being kind of unknown to you, unknown to the people you know, makes it a little bit more fun. But yeah. for that to work, it does have to be short. Again, all those other elements have to be in place. Um, I think point number five would be, it's like point 4A, mm -hmm. is that the best friend of the editor of the beer journal that your friend didn't get hired at is an excellent choice, but also a terrible one. You'll still be questioning 19 years later. Oh, no, five years later. I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a beautiful baby. <laughs> and that's our takeaway from this week in love. Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris. This week, Naf is going to tell us about the amazingly sexy book, Dangerous Liaisons. There will be Sarah Michelle Geller references within this episode, but you can also think of it as your sexy cliff notes. TM. So the French title is Liaisons Dangereuses. Uh, the book came out in 1782. Um, and the reference I'll be using for quotes is from an English translation done by Helen Constantine in 2007. The, I'm, I'm going to put it very bluntly. The book is quite rapey. And yeah. I remember when I rewatched the movie a few years ago, I remember thinking like, oh, this movie is terrible, right? It's so right. rapey. It's so, the book really adheres to that. And it's by design, I think, and we'll talk more about that, but just trigger warning that a lot of the sex that happens in this book is not with consent. Right. But that's a really important theme in the book as well. When right. the word consent is used in French and when it's not. Um, so there we go. Anybody looking for your thesis? We've already given you a hint. Truly? No, but seriously, do it. Jay Sword and have it. <laughs> I was too busy preparing to write it myself. 
but please go for it. Um, we decided to get drunk and record ourselves instead. <laughs> More useful than a JSTOR article. Come on. So like I said, the book was originally published in 1782, publishing four volumes. It was actually banned in France in 1824. But Marie Antoinette had a copy. Exactly. And so did Virginia Woolf. And so it was a lot of like... <laughs> Those are different things. No, exactly. But it's like yeah, I mean, like... women that we know. Oh, okay. Who also had kind of like undercover copies of this book. Okay. But oh, so even Virginia Woolf's time yes. was still... Okay. Because that was interesting. So this book is... Huge. Sorry, I'm thinking undercover copies as a... Like a, a possible film i don't know like i'm just it's, it's a, a kind of cop movie like it's a cop movie, yeah, but about, but like, about really and... cute cops <laughs> <laughs> undercover copies oh my god it's about undercover cops who are puppies <laughs> that's where you get the ease from. <laughs> I, I just want a kind of buddy cop movie between uh, marie antoinette and uh, virginia wolf it's um, probably not gonna fly <laughs> not with the writer's strike exactly. anyway <laughs> Hey, writer's strike is it's over. over. Oh. It's, it's SAG that we have SAG to- now, bitches. Yeah, actors uh, align. <laughs> I have drunk Rachel says bitches a lot more than sober Rachel. <laughs> There's our catchphrase <laughs> for the beginning of the episode. Oh, but this book is so weird because it got banned so early on that it was super influential, huge blockbuster, right? And then disappeared. And then all of a sudden, like, Who banned it. The French government Seven. came out in 1782, published, and then it was a huge hit. Right. 1824 gets banned. 1824. So 1824, it's banned. That's after the French Revolution. That's after a lot of Yeah, but Marie Antoinette's already dead by then. So why did she have like a, was it just that it was so scandalous? She had like an unnamed copy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, it was really scandalous because at the time also, and we'll get into that, like a lot of the stuff that we find so objectionable now, the French audience of the time would have found horrific as well. And that's really important too, because there, there's a publisher's note and there's an editor's note, mm-hmm. which really blur. And both of them were written by the author. Sorry, I haven't even mentioned. So this book was written by uh, Pierre Chauderlo de Laclos, who's a military officer. And side note, if you have a de in your name, it means that you your family once owned a village slash territory because it means of. And so it basically indicates nobility or in contemporary French society, what was formerly nobility. And that's a totally different issue today. But at the time, we have the sense that this guy is fancy. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit. I'm not going to mention too much with the author because we have so much to talk about the book. But I do want to offer like a potential like lens through which to like read this or kind of view what we're going to talk about. So in 1783, there was a big question in France about women's education. What can we do to improve it? And Laclos decided that he was going to publicly respond. So and he was like, teach them the alphabet. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing more, but they right. can have the alphabet. But so his, so his, his quote is that there is, wherever there is slavery, there cannot be education. And in our society, women are slaves. So women in society cannot actually be positively affected by education. This is 1783. And there is something kind of, to me, almost revolutionary about a man of status, as, we, mm. as you mentioned, saying like, what's even the point? This question is facetious, right? This question is, has no bearing. If we are treating women the way that we are, what's the fucking point of educating them, right? Yeah. Like, what is the point of actually being educated? But as you can imagine, I have a lot of questions about that based <laughs> on this book, which by the way is his only novel. He did write other pedagogical essays, notably about women's education at the time. But this is his only I'm sorry, novel. write it in my Playboy spread, writing ped- 
writing pedagogical essays about women's education is a turn off. <laughs> this was oh. the 1780s. Though. Okay. So this book is an epistolary novel, meaning a novel written entirely in letters. And I'm never going to say that word again because I can't believe I got it all out. It's not <laughs> the other one. Um, so the book is set in the 1700s, although Laclau keeps the exact years really vague by design. So at the end of each letter, there's a year that's denoted, but the last two digits are asterisks. Um, and I, there's a quote that I, so I want to keep in mind that idea of female education, but there's a quote that I love from this critic named Peter Gay, who said, in Rousseau, and I'll explain why that's important, everybody wins through losing. The sacrifice of gratification leads to pure, more exalted happiness. In Laclau, everybody loses through winning. Insistence on gratification leads to restlessness, a sense of being cheated and tragedy. I love this quote in part because it's true that everyone actually wins in Dangerous Ladies On. Yeah. And it's the saddest book ever. Like everybody gets what they want. Yeah. Everybody gets what they said they mm. wanted. And because it's a letter form, they explicitly articulate. And letters, of course, are super important. We'll talk more about that. But they are not being described by like, you know, it's not a third person narration. It's not the author. Right. They are presenting their friends and they all get what they want and they're all fucking miserable by the end. Which is an incredible achievement, actually, because exactly. it, like it goes so far from the Aristotelian ideal of you put your characters up in a tree, you get them stuck up there, you throw stones at them and they overcome it. Exactly. Right here. It's like they overcome it. And there's another step yet. It's amazing. I could say Aristotelian. And also one more thing. Oh, last time we all said, or most of us said that we'd fuck letters. Uh, you're welcome. This is the episode about exactly. fucking letters. Exactly. And the Rousseau reference matters too, because one of Rousseau's novels, La Nouvelle Héloïse, is mentioned constantly in the book mm. as a counterpoint. So La Nouvelle Héloïse is very much like uncynical love, innocent love. And then before I even get to the plot, which is like really complicated, um, Something about the, the structure of these letters is also that it's kind of designed as if it's a spider's web. So one character gets all of the letters. She's the only person who has full kind of authority on what's actually going on. And then they'll switch. But that actually is really interesting, right? Because each person is writing basically to impress the person they're writing to. And because the Marquise will, will, will explain, like, she gets most of the letters, it means that she's kind of the person in power until she's not. But it's a really interesting way to kind of, like place the plot because it also makes everyone an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. mm. You actually can't trust anybody. They're all writing letters and they're all also very aware that their letters are going to be kept by the person they send them to. And especially for the women in this book, that's a big risk, right? That's yep. showing a lot of trust that the man you're writing to will not, will not use your letters against you. Spoiler, they will. <laughs> that's one of the major themes of this fucking book. Right. And moving forward, I would like you to refer to the characters by the actors' names. You played them in the, in the movie, movie from the, the movie. 90s. Um, and yeah, obviously you don't trust John Malkovich with your letters because John Malkovich has resting all reveal your letters villain face. <laughs> well, but I was going to say actually that the um, the number of, this might be jumping ahead, but the number of uh, interpretations of the book there uh, that there have been through movies is is very interesting, and you know having watched a few of them, um, and how you can interpret the characters in very different ways, which is a good way of talking about the unreliability of the narrators as the the you know you know the, the various characters in it you can't trust them. So it, it's given dramatizations of it a real carte blanche, as it were, yeah. to just decide on what their actual motivations are. Chris, that's the conclusion. You are with two English majors, <laughs> uh, one English major and one complet, <laughs> who can 
murder a textual analysis. You are you are jumping way far ahead, my friend. Yeah, way far ahead. Please. Listeners, that's your conclusion. Yeah. We've given you your thesis statement and your conclusion. Now we're gonna fill in the body paragraph. The college students, <laughs> this is what you need at the beginning of the end. Right. <laughs> and then um, but but the movies are interesting too because age really gets blurred in the movies. Mm. So um there's the nineteen eighty eight movie with John Malkovich and Glenn Close, who's amazing. And because that's always been my visual reference for this book, I always thought of these characters as being older. Actually, the, so the two main characters are Le Vicomte de Valmont and La Marquise de Merteuil. I'm going to refer to them from now on as the Marquise and Valmont because, my God, we don't have time. Um, <laughs> but so based on the movie, I would think that, oh, they're in their 30s and also given all that they do in the book. But actually, Valmont's supposed to be in his like late 20s and the Marquise no. is supposed to be in her early 20s. Early 20s. They're young. Wow. They're extremely young. So Cruel Intentions, in many ways, is much closer to their actual ages they're supposed to be in this book. Um, okay, so the plot. We have Vadmont and we have La Marquis. So this is the 1700s, and this book is perhaps a critique, perhaps, you know, a celebration of the libertines, right? This, like, kind of sexual freedom in Paris. Specifically, Vadmont and Marquis are very rich. They're young. And they are kind of the the wheelers and dealers of Parisian society at this point. The word reputation comes up a ton. Another way that Cruel Intentions actually is like really smart about putting this in a high school environment. Because the way that Vadmo and Marquis talk about their reputations, it's like, how big is Paris? But you think about it, even now, Paris is quite small when you think about certain industries. At the time, yeah, they knew like 15 other people and that's what they did. But Vadmo and Marquis are kind of the leaders of rich Parisian society and very much like rich Parisian sexually free society. Their motto is we are the 1%. Yeah. 100%. 100%. They were lovers before and now they are very close, but it's an uneasy friendship because both of them have dirt on the other person. Right. So the dirt on Valmont, which never gets explained in the book and like honestly who gives a shit is it's a political thing. He might've committed treason. We don't really know. The dirt on the Marquise is that she's presented herself to society as being a morally upstanding woman. Mm -hmm. She is in the enviable position of being a young widow of a very rich man. And so she's done her duty, right? She's been married at a very young age. Well, I have some quotes about like how she studies how to be a proper woman. Mm -hmm. She's fucking everybody, just like Vadmol. Vadmol has kind of the tinge of something a little bit like, you know, salacious about him. The Marquise is maintaining a perfect Christian presence. Mm. So they're friends. Now, they, the beginning of the book, and by the way, Venmo and the Marquise never actually see each other during the course of the book. They never meet. Mm-hmm. It is all by letters, like the entire, the entirety of their like really intense relationship. So the book begins because the Marquise is like, oh, do you know that guy, Gercourt? And Venmo's like, mm, not really. And she's like, he fucked us both over. So Gercourt apparently left the Marquise to be with the woman who left Venmo for him as well. Right. Turns out that Gercourt's future mother-in-law is the cousin of the Marquis. So he's going to marry this woman named Cécile, right. who has just left a convent. So she's lived her whole life in the convent. Right. Yeah, so just, there are a lot of kind of quite complicated things in the plot, but yeah. there are also some very simply, some simple things in the plot, basically. Yeah. Like, it's, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And just to simplify that, like if you're writing an essay about that at the moment, the main point is that both of these people want to get back at this guy by fucking with his, like, his well, fiance. Well, not quite, yeah. Only the Marquise does at the beginning. See, I didn't even understand it. And I have a million dollar PhD. <laughs> <laughs> so at the beginning, the Marquise is like, this man made a fool of us. Here's what we have to do. You fuck Cecile, his future wife, who just left a convent because he wants a virgin. And then he's going to be 
such a fool on his wedding day when he realizes she's not a virgin. And Van Mol's like, yawn. No, that's so easy. Anybody can do that. She doesn't know anything. Of course I could fuck her. I've got a way better prospect in mind. He's at his aunt's house in the country and he's going to fuck this really Christian woman. That's his plan. Marquise is like, oh, whatever, do what you must do. Cecile falls in love with the music teacher. Marquise is like... Cecile's the, the daughter who... Yes, the common girl. Yeah. She's basically Cosette in terms of personality, in terms of looks, in terms of fucking everything. Exactly. Her personality is blonde. So Cecile falls in love with the music teacher, Delsigny, blah, blah, blah. And the Marquise insinuates herself as being like the number one confidant for Cecile. So Cecile gets a letter from Delsigny, her music teacher, and she's like, oh my God, what should I do? She goes to the Marquise. The Marquise pretends because of course she has like the status in society to maintain. She's like, oh, it's really terrible. But you know what? If you show me both sides of your correspondence, I guess it's okay. And then, of course, she's able to use that as ammunition later on. Um, and Cecile's so dumb and naive that she kind of goes along with it. Once again, that sounds complicated, and I kind of missed that in my head as to exactly what was happening. But if you carry on, then it becomes clearer. Right? Okay. Like- no, the, the summary of that is basically that uh, like the one bad thing that not bad, but like socially unacceptable thing that um, Cecile has ever done in her life. The Marquise gets her to admit and gets evidence of it. Yes. It actually, and like Cecile goes to her spontaneously, right? She's yeah. like, I can't talk to my mom because I just like left the convent. I'm supposed to marry this guy. Um, but the Marquise is kind of like her big sister, right? She's like her mom's cousin. So she's in the family. She's respected, whatever. Yeah. And the Marquise is totally using this, right? And she's telling Ben all the stuff that Cecile tells her. Um, in the meantime, Bad Mole finds out that Cecile's mom has been talking shit to the woman that he's trying to fuck in the countryside, the Christian woman, who I'll just call, she's the, la Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer, <laughs> thank you. Um, so now he's- Also in the movie. Also in the movie. <laughs> so Bad Mole finds out that Cecile's mom is talking shit to him about him, to la présidente, the woman he's trying to fuck in the countryside. So he writes, I almost said emails, he writes letters to the Marquis saying, never mind, I'm going to fuck your virgin because- her mom is insufferable. She's really getting in the way of like this conquest I have. Oh, because in the movies, this is something that's never explained exactly. why he decides to fuck the virgin. Exactly. So this is, so in the books is the explanation. Um, it is explained in the movies. Uh, <laughs> Obviously. I mean, <laughs> that's the plot. I might edit this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, meanwhile, the Marquise is really fucking bored. She only has one lover. Belmont's away in the countryside. And she's like, and these virgins are taking forever to fuck. I know what to do. And so she goes to her cousin, Cecile's mom, and she's like, hi, I have like a bad feeling. I feel like your daughter and her music teacher are writing to each other. Do you want to go check in the upper left-hand corner of her drawer in the room? I don't know. I feel like I have an instinct. I feel like that might be a good place to look. Of course, Cecile told her all of the stuff about where she stashes her letters. Her mom finds out. She goes ballistic. And she's like, you're never going to see your music teacher again. And she takes her to the country. <laughs> Where to the same house where Vanmol, his aunt, and the woman he's trying to fuck are. Because apparently there's only one country house that any of these people can yeah. go to. It's, Narr- an elevator, it's elevator episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's elevator episode. Um, and then the Marquise goes to Cecile and she's like, I kind of feel like your mom is being unreasonable. You know what? I'll try to help you. I have this like really good friend, Vanmol. I think it can be like your intermediary. Um, so he ends up being kind of the person who passes letters between Cecile and Dulcini while Cecile's in the country and Dulcini's still in Paris, right? Like he's not allowed to go in the house again. Meantime, Venmo starts to fuck Cecile, right? Like, cause they're in the same house and it's really uncomfortable. 
as a reader. Um, Cecile is also uncomfortable. We'll get to that. Um, meanwhile, La Présidente, the Christian woman that he's trying to fuck, decides to leave the aunt's house because she's obviously in love with Van Mol, but she's a Christian and she's married. We never see her husband. He's like doing, big air quotes, doing business somewhere else. And we never see him in the book. Um, That's a really good way narratively to get rid of a husband. It's right. It's perfect. Have them doing business. And she's so morally rigid. She's so religious that the idea of giving into Van Mol would just go against all of her morals, right? So she decides to leave. Of course, he pursues her. He breaks her down. He fucks her. She's completely obsessed and subsumed by him. And she decides that the sole purpose of her life is to make Vanmo happy. This is a huge sacrifice because that Prigold is the letters that she writes before she actually like, you know, decide like fucks Vanmo. I, I almost said decides, but actually that's a really big problem with consent in this book. Right. Um, she's it's, 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 it's an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. And so when she gives in, it's like, I love him. I'll guess I'll give in, but She's given her soul to the devil. In yeah. her mind, she is now going to hell forever. But it's worth it for him. France is a Catholic country. At that time, even now, like we have All Saints Day off of work, yeah. which I mean, thank you. But like yeah, <laughs> also exactly. Exactly. it's like it's still Catholic in a lot of ways culturally. But back at this time, like divorce was not you know, even a remote possibility. Right. The way that, say, in England, you could be divorced but shunned. Mm-hmm. It's like here you'd be divorced and you couldn't go to church and your soul would be damned for eternity and everybody would know it. Exactly. It, like, it wasn't great in England either, but like... And it's really smart actually to not have her husband in the book too because then we can focus really on her crisis, her personal kind of devastation over Vanmol, right? We don't have to deal with also her guilt. Her guilt with her husband is there. It's present. Yep. But we don't have to kind of have another voice there, right? Like, it's really singularly, like, focused on him. Um, Another thesis statement that's very interesting is that Valmont is the only true male voice that comes through in this book, which is really interesting for the time period when you compare it to other early novels, such as Clarissa, where you do have kind of the the focus on the woman, Mm -hmm. but there's so many men coming in and out. That's it. And even though, like, Dawson, he does write letters, but those letters almost don't matter. Van Mol and the Marquise are the motors of this plot, right? Right. Dawson and Cecile are their puppets throughout. Dawson is Keanu Reeves, who is a stick of wood. Exactly. And he's a child. I get you to admit it. He's a beautiful stick of wood, but a stick of wood nonetheless. And so very good in The Matrix, which is a whole other podcast. Um, Find a way to relate it to Paris and we'll talk. And love to be, I mean, I suppose, anyway. (laughs) The love for The Matrix, my dude. (laughs) So the Marquise, in the meantime, back in Paris, so we're going back and forth geographically decides that she needs a new fuck buddy. And she's like, well, Dalsini's kind of hot. So she starts fucking Dalsini. But it's not just because he's kind of hot. It also messes with Venmo. So what yeah. we decide, so what we realize over the course of, at this point in the book, we realize the Marquise definitely has feelings for Venmo. But for them, for Venmo and for the Marquise, it's very clear from the beginning, they are cruel, unempathetic people. They think love, falling in love is so gross. Their whole the reason why they fuck people is to have conquests to talk about in their society, right? This Would is their reputation. Would you say that their intentions are cruel? What? I know. Did I just blow your mind? <laughs> so, again, it's unclear whether the Marquise has chosen the path of fucking Dulcinea for maximum chaos because she actually thinks he's attractive or to make Vanderbilt jealous. I think it's a mix of obviously all these three. Um, and then in the meantime, she plays fucking mind games with Vanderbilt and she's like, I think you love La Présidente because he presents it to her because, oh, I... Is I it a mind game, though? This is the real question for me. 
is this the mind game or is that the thing that you do with somebody that you actually have feelings for where you're just like, mm, you're super into her, aren't for you? Sure. It's a mind It's a mind game based on real feelings. Yeah. I'm so sorry. There's actually a really important plot point here that I forgot to mention, um, which is that they do make a bet. So way early on when the Marquise offers to Vademont, you should fuck Cécile. And he's like, it's too easy. I want to fuck La Présidente because that's a bigger challenge. They make a bet. Right. So the Marquise tells him, once you fuck la présidente, I need written proof from her to you. Like, so I'll get a letter um, proving that she has fucked you, that you fucked her. And then you can come back to Paris and quote, I shall be yours. It's I'm- also, sorry, just to be clear, he doesn't just want to fuck la présidente. He wants to fuck her and do it in a way which, like, she doesn't rescind any of her Christian That's values, exactly. right? Like, I mean, like... That's what makes it a challenge. Yeah, it, it's not just because he could maybe kind of go out and mm. sort of, you know, convince her of the libertine lifestyle and everything like that, but he wants her to retain her Christian sensibilities. Exactly. Um, and still have her have sex with him. That's exactly it. Look, at some point early on in the book, the Marquis says, you really think you're going to convert someone like that president to like our cause mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what I want is for her basically to be broken. I want her to keep as exactly as Chris, I want her to retain every single one of her values and look at them as she's fucking me and realize that she's betrayed every single one of them. And the again, Marquise the is like, here is extraordinary. So the Marquise has said, I need written proof. And in her mind at the beginning, she's like, yeah, absolutely one of his many conquests. What we see, though, is that Vanmont does fall in love with La Présidente, and La Présidente does fall in love with him. But the Marquise is so good at toying with him. She is really good at manipulating his emotions. And she has feelings for him, there's no question, but he's too dense to see that because he's in love with someone else. And she's not okay with being the second place. Is he too dense to see that, or does he just not reciprocate? Because at the beginning, he hasn't met these women yet. Right. At the beginning, though, when they talk about, like, oh, my darling, love or whatever, it is very much in a playful mode. So even if she has those feelings at the beginning, she's not showing it. They're very much in banter, banter, banter. This is what we do. Oh, it'll be so fun to have sex again because we're really good at it. But I think... I, I think to like it, it it's interesting because it it, it does there is a really complicated plot going on here mm-hmm. but i feel that the essence of it is like a bad guy is induced to do a bad thing mm-hmm. to an innocent person yes. and then he, the innocent person transforms his badness into innocence which he then can't live with and that's the essence of the plot which is why it's been i think kind of like you know turned into so many movies because actually that's the plot of like loads of movies and loads of stories which Mm -hmm. are not necessarily this uh but anyway yeah i think you're absolutely right that the transformations are crucial to this but i'd say when you're crafting your thesis statement you really need to take into account that this is two cruel people focusing on two innocent people uh including dalsini yeah Yeah. Uh, but in terms of like in terms of power dynamics the women have it well it's 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 Interesting. Compare power dynamics in your next essay. But this is no. But this this is an interesting. I'm sorry if we're getting off topic here, but it's an mm. interesting thing about like that. There is a lot of complexity in the plot, and yeah, as you what say, is the focus? There yeah. are different focuses and stuff, but like in terms of story and the reason, you've got to have an engine which keeps people coming back to it. And in fact, the engine of this story is an incredibly classical one 
around which lots of other things can be hung. Yeah, you're right, because the thing with Cecile is that he's right. It is actually super easy to fuck her mm -hmm. in the end. I mean, like, exactly. because he rapes her. Well, that's what I was going to say. I, exactly. He I, rapes her, he impregnates her, she's a miscarriage in this book. Yeah. This book is really, it's a tough one. Yeah. Mm. And it's all, and, and because it's being narrated to us via letter, we never hear Cecile's take on this, by the way. We never yeah. feel her. We never hear her take on the miscarriage. She doesn't even know she's pregnant. Yeah, she doesn't understand. And that's but he knows, right? He knows. And actually, what's really interesting in the book too is that at the time, it was considered disgusting or unacceptable for a man to fuck a woman when she was on her period, but it was okay to fuck her when she was pregnant. And in a letter to the Marquise, he says, "Right, because you don't get your dick dirty." That's exactly. <laughs> he literally tells the Marquise, "Don't worry, I can still fuck her because she's pregnant, uh, so we don't have to worry about period." Uh, it gets kind of great. 1782, this book is... It, it's, well, it's the thing is, though, that if you're trying to hide it and she's on her period, yeah. like, you are making a mess. And that's harder to hide. But they also have servants who take care of everything, right? But like, the servants know and they talk. That's and you never had a servant. But Van Mons, man... Um, <laughs> First of all, you wish. talk like somebody <laughs> who has never had a servant. I had one once, but he talked. So, <laughs> I had awesome. really <laughs> so yeah, so, so um, very quickly... Um, Marquise takes this new fuck buddy and she basically pressures Van Maul into being like, you love her, don't you? You're obsessed with your prezzy dog. You love her so much. I bet you just want to like babies. And Van Maul's like, absolutely not, right? Like I'm a libertine. I have a reputation to consider. The whole point is I'm going to have a conquest of this person who no one thought you could ever fuck, right? And so he goes to, back to that president and he's like, um, I'm done. I'm over it. And it's obviously against his will. He's not well. And, and she protests. She protests, but she basically dies of heartbreak. That's the end of the that plays adult. Yeah, I'm sorry. the The funniest trope for me in older literature yeah. is people just dying of heartbreak when they're just like, yeah. and like in the movie too, they're like using like cupping and like all of these older yeah, techniques yeah, yeah. on her. It also and happens in Downton Abbey, right? Like, <laughs> and they're like, you know, when you're just so sad, you just die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that happens, but in a very different way from your than like what you're describing. <laughs> You don't just waste away. Which is exactly, and that's exactly what happens at the end of the book. She wastes away. She becomes delirious. She's talking, you know, like she has hallucinate. Like it's, she's full on breakdown at this point. Um, ultimately, speaking up a little bit, the Marquise and Van Mullen decide to go to war against each other because, because it becomes clear to the Marquise that Van Mullen is treating her like the second choice, right? Like that president is a real important one because he keeps coming back to Marquise and be like, well, I'm going to claim my prize. That's what you said. And she's like, no, that's the one I meant though. I want yeah. you to come back, not in love with her and come back to me as kind of like, you know, crowning victors. Yeah. With proof that you're like crowing over. Exactly. And he can do that. Yeah. Right? And when he does do it, she can see right through. And that's also why the, the writing of letters is really important because it's not someone who's analyzing facial expressions. She's like, no, this is not how you wouldn't write this. The way you're, you're forcing it. Right? Do you know the same hard. thing happens in Graduates in Wonderland, another epistolary book? Oh, tell you um, available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Seriously, yeah. And that's where that is where this form works really well. Um, because we you get to have characters who betray their real emotions against their will mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't feel that contrived. Mm -hmm. Right. If you've accepted mm -hmm. the form is we're writing letters, then you don't need to have that weird thing in dialogue that happens if it's not where it's like Right. She looked down and looked up. Had he found out what she really meant? We now have these letters where we do see their style change, right? We and do it's like the anybody who's ever overanalyzed a text message exactly. understands this vibe. That's exactly it. So she plays games with him where she's like, 
you know, I'm going to let you know the first when I go back to Paris, because there's a stupid storyline where that they introduce like halfway through the book where the Marquise has this trial that she has to go take care of when she goes back to the country. It literally only matters because it's part of her downfall. Yeah. So she's back in the country dealing with this trial that again, wasn't that important to tell us about apparently to like page 200. And Vanel finds out that she's been back in Paris for days, but she's been fucking Nelson. And he's like, oh, really? So Vanel reminds Nelson, Cecile really misses you. And Nelson is an innocent, right? Like he's been seduced by the Marquise, but he loves Cecile and he feels really bad, right? Like he feels like he cheated on her. Um, and he decides to drop the Marquise. The Marquise is like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> um, I feel that this book would, uh, it, it's like, it, it's not, so complicated but i think that the plot would work well just as kind of like a diagram almost yeah, if exactly. you just had sort of like exactly. a few lines kind of pointing at kind of like who is having sex with him that's it um but and, and you have to have like timestamps. yeah <laughs> yeah some of these affairs only last a few days yeah some last months right yeah yeah and i think that you could you could almost kind of like and this is so I, I I know I keep kind of riffing on this, but it, it's like this idea of it kind of like the complexity of it, which is it is a really complicated story. Mm. And it's that there are all these kind of backs and forths and like loads of people are kind of like sleeping with other people and so on and so forth. But actually it all ties together very nicely. And weirdly for such a complex story, it has the quality of like a, a myth or a folk tale, mm. um, which is, it, 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 yeah, it's the most complex myth that I'm I'm aware of having read. So so Venmo reminds Monsigny that Cecile's waiting for him and he gets guilty, he feels guilty, he drops the Marquise. Marquise shows Monsigny the letter where Venmo's like, ha ha ha, I fucked Cecile. Monsigny's like, <gasps> and he challenges Venmo to a duel. And it ends super well on it, all counts. It's all great. Also, side point, dueling is illegal in France at this point. Is it illegal? It's definitely illegal under Louis XIV, and I can't imagine that Louis counts or Louis says change that. I remember reading about this. I can't remember if it's that it was officially illegal or it was illegal, but for certain ranks of people, it was still done and it was like accepted. I, I don't remember. What oh the God! Don't was. try to increase nuance my argument. No, but I'm, I'm sure it's. <laughs> I'm sure it's still in the kind of like. It's not like challenging someone to a duel now, which is why which I think. Which is, <laughs> but, but, I mean, this is why I think in the contemporary retellings of it, they don't represent this with a duel between two they major characters. They do John Malkovich one, though. Well, yeah, no, but no, that's the set in the time, Oh, sorry, sorry. I thought you meant, like, not set in age. Yeah, think, yeah. I think it's more illegal in the sense of, like, smoking pot is illegal in France. Yes. I think that's a, probably a very good Agreed. description of what you so Smoking pot doing. doesn't kill you, so they couldn't make it work. It's <laughs> <laughs> Dueling was the smoking pot of the seventeen eighties. Like, there's your thesis statement, bitches. <laughs> because you know it was still legal in Germany at the time, for sure. As, um, I can't speak for uh, the marijuana laws of uh, Germany in the eighteenth century, but definitely dueling was still okay wait i'm interested in how you know because the way i know my fact was through outlander what's the way you know your Ooh, fact what's your source uh just general knowledge isn't it no it's solid about outlander <laughs> it's some kind of porn it's some <laughs> kind of porn oh my god uh, what, what is my source i you just know that about du dueling well, in Germany? Probably, we established it's porn. I'm sorry, dueling in Germany. Um, I think I'm dialing... You didn't understand the joke because it sounded too familiar. I'm, I, I think I'm dialing back from the Flashman books, which are uh, very well researched and a lot of episodes of In Our Time. Um, so Dulcini challenges Benwell to a duel. 
which he wins, but it's very heavily implied in the book and actually in all the movies that I've seen of this, the movie versions, that it's Van Mol dying by suicide. He decides, like in the book, it's we know from the early on that he, Van Mol is a very skilled, skilled and skillful swordsman. Mm. There's no way that Dulcine should be able to win. Which has a dual meaning. <laughs> D-U-A-L and D-U-E-L. Beautiful. I fucking love that. <laughs> It's not a pun in French, though, so it was on <laughs> in the original. It's, yeah, that's true. Um, so Van Mol dies, but before he dies, he passes along to Dulcini all the letters he's ever exchanged with the Marquise, which Dulcini then exchanges, and he passes around amongst, like, Parisian society. The burn book. Exactly. Again, Cruel Intentions did it perfectly. Like, that is exact, it's a one-to-one comparison. If, o- if only, like, uh, Ryan Phillippe had, like, jumped in front of the taxi rather than been pushed. That whole death is so insane. Ugh. So insane. Um, so he starts passing around her letters. Dalton, he starts passing around the Marquise's letters to Venmal, um, which ruins her reputation, of course. And the kind of climax scene of the loss of her reputation, which is, again, beautifully done in the 1988 movie, is that she goes to the, the theater, to her usual box, and the first sign of unrest is that no man approaches her. That's the mm. first thing. Um, and then she goes, there's an intermission. She goes to like the little room where all the rich people go. And not only does anyone not, no one talks to her. They start booing her and she has to leave. Sorry, can you imagine the absolute balls it would take to boo somebody to their face? <laughs> then she gets smallpox. <laughs> like the, this, the downfall of the marquee. Not shown in the movie. Yeah, yeah. No. Here's your key, guys, to revealing that you read the book instead of the movie mm-hmm. when you only listen to this podcast. Smallpox. <laughs> um, so Cecile's mom, or her cousin, writes to someone about the end of the Marquise's kind of like life in this book, which she says in her letter, I was right to say that it would be a blessing if she died of the smallpox. She has recovered from it. It is true, but she is horribly disfigured. And in particular, she has lost the sight of one eye. And I feel like one eye is like, Actually, you couldn't have just made her totally like it just feels like it's extra like cyclops cyclopsian i don't know um and then in the same letter you'll understand that i've not seen her again but they say she's truly hideous and then she loses her court case um which leaves her bankrupt and she the last week that we you know the audience the people in paris hear of her she's taken all of her jewels and fled the rumor is to holland cecile in the meantime is I mean, it's fucking destroyed, right? Like, she's been played by everybody. She's lost Dulcini. She doesn't understand why Dulcini's not near her. Oh, Dulcini does come back to her after the duel. No. Oh, because men are the worst. He- also, sorry, sidebar, total, like, uh, uh, premonitions of Marie Antoinette taking all your jewels and fleeing to Holland. It's absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Mm. Where do you think she got the yeah, idea? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. She was like, I guess I'm going to read this book mm-hmm. and make it my manual for life. Hey, birthday twin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Cecile basically puts herself back on the nunnery. Like, she's just like, I'm never coming back out again. And her mom is so upset. She's like, I don't know why Cecile's gone back and she's never leaving. And she takes her vows. She becomes a nun. And Dulcini goes to Malta, where he's going to join a military um unit that he was a part of before, the Knights of Malta, I think, Um, where once you once you commit fully, you can no longer have sex. So that's why this was like kind of his like free time. And uh-huh. then he goes to Malta. And then at the end of the book, all of the letters that we have read are given to Van Mol's aunt. So that's the one who has the house in the country yep. where La Présidente is and then where he meets her. The one who um, said the 
bad things about Valmont. No, to, that's no, a thing. Oh. So this is someone else. It's a different aunt. I've okay. not mentioned her because I don't want to get too involved in it, but this right. is the aunt who owns the house. Okay. The one who said bad things about Valmont is Cecile's mother. Uh, Cecile's who's mother, the cousin yes. of the Marquise. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. But basically, ownership of the letters leaves the Marquise, and now it's all in the aunt's possession. And the aunt in the in Cruel Intentions is like the slightly incestuous, like the, the slightly incestuous relationship that Ryan Phillippe has with the woman who owns the house. Yes. He's like a little bit too touchy with yeah. her. Yeah, that's exactly. the aunt. Exactly. Um, and then, so just a note about Vanmont. So this is so this is the kind of thing that he's against, right? So this is the kind of criticism that Cecile's mom gives to La Présidente. She writes in a letter, he is even more duplicitous and dangerous than he is charming and seductive. And never from his most tender years has he taken one step or spoken one word without having some scheme or other. Never has he had a scheme which was not dishonorable or wicked. His conduct is the result of his principles. He can calculate how far a man may permit himself to do dreadful deeds without compromising himself. And so that he may be wicked and cruel with impunity, he has chosen women to be his victims. Mm. And I do think that is a little bit that close kind of like with, you know, female education. There's a little bit of this kind of like sense of there's a patriarchy, there's a system against women. Right. Um, and then one of the quotes from the Marquis that I'm obsessed with is, I'm like the deity, capital D, receiving the opposing wishes of blind mortals and not changing my immutable decrees one whit. Mm. Right. So we have a woman who is in many ways an omnip omnipresent, omnipotent deity, but she's also one of the only, so the only people who get punished in this book are basically the Marquis and Cecile. Valmont gets to die a martyr's death. Mm. He gets his reputation, mm. right? He dies, and he also kind of dies for love, if you think about it. Yeah. Also, he's able to escape. He makes a full confession to Venmo's aunt, and that's how he gives her the letters. He's like, you know, I don't want to keep these like poison letters. I want to just go and like be part of religious order. The only people who suffer, who lose, are the two main women characters. But the Marquise is also, without question, the protagonist of this book. Right. Uh, but I'd argue that the president uh, also suffers because doesn't she? Exactly. Yes. So, sorry. Yeah. So the three women. Actually, the president probably suffers more than anybody. Yeah. Because mm. she didn't ask for this shit. Right? Like, right. She just wanted to be married to her husband, le president. She wanted to live in the country and praise God. And this fucking bitch comes in and ruins everything and yeah. pursues her to no end. So exactly. So the only people who suffer are women. And the Marquise, I mean, like, I keep focusing on her because I'm obsessed with her, but also because she is the protagonist, really, of this book. Right. She suffers on every level. She loses her money. She loses her looks. She loses her reputation. She has nothing by the everything that she tells us she is prized and also worked really hard for. There's a there are many monologues in this book where she talks about how I had to teach myself how to be this. No yeah. one gave me the tools to be this powerful. And that happens in both movies as well. Exactly. Yeah. So the person who did all of this on her own is really the one who receives the to me the severest punishment. Okay, but she's also the villain in the book. So is Van How is Van less of a villain? No, well Valmont is not he's the protagonist. He's, he's the one the arrow who... that she shoots. How is he the protagonist though? But he's he's he... the object of the sentence. But this book only works as the Marquise is in it. You yeah, could have yeah, this book without yeah. Valmont. Yeah. She's the subject. He's the object. But well, the protagonist? now this is a grammar podcast. No, I, I, I think that he is the one who, um, all right, mate. Actually, no, he, sorry, that was an exaggeration, but I was really upset. No, I'd, I'd say that. that she's the antagonist because she's the one who's sort of like, you know, encouraging him to do, you know, he, he's the arrow who she shoots, right. so to speak, but she's encouraging him to do things. And so he gets uh, a hero's arc, basically. Mm -hmm. He goes out into the world he um you know commits his evil deeds 
and then is transformed by the response to those evil deeds and is and falls in love and then right. he he has a a sense of change so i'm just talking in, in purely in in sense of story mm-hmm. um she doesn't really have that change of character she's just the villain she's the antagonist who is sort of like making things happen I, I which think yeah sorry, go ahead, but she is making things happen and course, versus yeah. having things happen to her but also, also i've done the hero's arc before and it's way overrated I actually agree with that. Um, <laughs> but I will say with the Marquise is that she's gone through multiple arcs by the time we even meet her, mm. right? Like the so she's been a widow, she's been a wife, she's been, you know, she's been she's been Cecile, right? Like she has been the person who's been cloistered and mm. not allowed to meet men, not allowed to anything about sex. And she's pulled herself out. And I actually think her journey is that she's falling in love and she and she but she's so committed to her principles mm. of being a libertine that most wishy-washy. And so what I would argue is that. Maybe she's not the hero, but she's not a villain. I think she's the anti-hero of this book. Well, I'm I'm not saying um, I'm not saying that she's not deserving of our sympathies mm-hmm. as readers, but I'm saying that in terms of the tyranny of story, yeah, that her ending is a necessary ending, and his ending is a sort of a necessary ending as yes. well, because that's just how story works, and then you know you're allowed to decide whether you are sympathetic to this character or that character yes in the 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 overarching thing and i think that um you know in every version of it that i've uh i've seen Mm -hmm. i think that there is something very sympathetic about her character but in a kind of traditional narrative sense um she can't have a happy ending because she's the quote unquote villain of the piece. I see what you mean. I think, and actually I think it with the writing to me, at least it seems really clear that Laclos loves her, but Mm. is aware because of the narrative conventions of the time that he can't let her get away scot-free Yeah, because her down. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Four and a half pages. Mm. Right. But there are so many speeches that are iconic, that are wonderful in this book where she defends herself. Right. And she really defends Mm. how, she was not going to let herself be taken in. Mm-hmm. But what becomes complicated, and so one of the kind of questions I have is about consent in this book. It's used only a few times in the original French, like the word consentement, yeah. and she's the person who always says it. But she never applies it to other women, which, which actually I can even just skip to that because, um, because she is constantly talking about what other women deserve versus her. Mm. right so so for example she says about other so this is early on in the book she's talking about la presidente this is before Manuel has fallen in love with her and he's like oh but she has to give herself to me right and the marquise is writing to him a lot of her letters to him are like are you dumb like, just do it this way and so she basically says um however much a woman wants to basically she says this however much a woman wants to give herself however eager she is to do it she still must have a pretext and is there a more convenient one than that which makes it seem she's yielding to force? So she's basically telling Van Mall, rape her. The fuck are you talking about? What do you mean she she should want it? Right. She, Pretend like it's the much less common scenario of rape fantasy. Exactly. And yeah. But then later on when she's talking about herself, she says, um, so he's saying to her like farewell as in, and she's like, farewell as in the old days, you say? But in the old days, it seems to me you valued me more highly. You had not relegated me totally to a minor role. And above all, you were willing to wait for me to say yes before you made sure of my consent. Mm. And that's one of the few times that the word consent is used. And the mm. mar- and 
I would argue, and and I think especially going back to that quote from Laclau about female education, right? That it seems like almost the theory that he's kind of not quite officially like or explicitly touting, but showing is that perhaps not that some women are exceptional. Some women can rise above. And the way the Marquise talks mm-hmm. about herself, she's not like other women. Yeah. Really in all cases, right? She supports, she full open like throated gives consent to Vanmol to rape other women. Um <laughs> but, but I, I do right? wonder too- when she talks about herself, it's not the same as other women. Other women are bullshit. She yeah. does something else. But I do wonder too about the hierarchy of actual titles at this point because he's what, a vicomte, which is like rather low on the rung. Marquise is kind of middle ground, right? It's true, but Cecile is also of higher class. That's one of the But does she have a title? She doesn't. She doesn't have a title, right? She's she hasn't gotten married yet. The only reason the Marquise has a title is because she was married. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is what Cecile's father's title is, and I'm, I have no idea in this case. Yes, I don't. I don't think so. I um, think there are these finer gradations mm-hmm. within French society at the time that need kind of like a new historical reading to kind of uh, situate them that we don't quite have. The background knowledge for. Although it's really important too that at this time, yes, of course, it's a different time, et cetera, et cetera. But the average French reader in 1782, 1783, one of the reasons why they would be shocked was not just because it was like libertinage and all this stuff. And by the way, like, uh, I I don't know if I, so I mentioned like Rousseau and La Nouvelle Eloise. So it's like, that's the kind of like love story that French audiences have been used to, right? They recognize this as being an outrageous thing, right? This is rape. Yeah. And it's supposed to shock the reader. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also want to give an example of a speech that the Marquise gets to have. Um, and this is a, in a letter to Vanuel. And she says, what have you ever done that I have not outdone a thousand times? You have seduced, even ruined numerous women. But what problems did you have to conquer? What obstacles did you have to overcome? So where's the real merit in that? A handsome face, the result of pure chance. Nice manners, which can almost always be acquired with a little paint practice. Wit certainly, but prattle do instead at a pinch. <laughs> um, a certain admirable boldness. That's that my one, motto. Right. That one might <laughs> attribute solely to the ease of your first conquests. And if I'm not greatly mistaken, that is all. For a celebrity ghost <laughs> will not ask me, I suppose, to believe that your talent for creating and seizing the opportunity for scandal counts for very much. And the rest of the letter, she's like, I'm doing it. I've had to deal with so many obstacles and I'm still better than you. What's yeah. your fucking excuse? Fuck her. And come home to me. Where's this letter? Um, so I'm really intrigued by the way that like gender is used in this book because it's almost like the speeches that she gets are above and beyond what a woman in fiction at the time would have been allowed to have. Yeah. But, but it also was... feels so true. Exactly. Right? It's very much the pull the ladder up behind you type thing, exactly. you know, where she's like, I'm in a great position. Fuck everybody else. That's it. Exactly. Um, and then the importance of letters is obviously like really important, blah, blah, blah. But the two things also is that there's a publisher's note and an editor's preface to this book, both written by Alec Clos. The publisher's note begins, we do not guarantee the authenticity of this book as a collection of letters <laughs> and in fact have compelling reasons to believe it is simply a novel. The editor's <laughs> preface, which comes right after, says, it seems to me at least that it's doing a service to society to unveil the strategies used by the immoral to corrupt the moral. And I believe these letters will make an effective contribution to this end. The role, like, and the role of feminism here is, I think, even more pressing and weird and kind of nuanced because we have someone who in, at the time was considered a feminist, right? Was someone who was kind of openly acknowledging the patriarchy of 18th century France, has this book that seems to show his kind of conflicting allegiances, moralities. Like, what is this book for, I guess, right? Like, who, what is this really supposed to be doing? Who was it aimed at? 
because even the two, the editor's preface, the publisher's notes seem to be giving us two different points of view or purposes. Mm. We have the book itself, which seems to kind of be fighting against itself in a really great way. Like I, I also mm. can't recommend enough this book. And also one of the few books I've, re I've read in French where I'm like worth it. Struggle through. It is absolutely worth it because actually the English translation, which is really faithful to the French translation, or at least this one that I read, um, it feel it reads really weird in English. It's so faithful, yeah. and that's and that's not a knock at all against the translation. Helen Constantine, great translator, but it is just that in the French, it really has a musicality that doesn't feel foreign. Mm. To it. Um, but yeah, like what do we think? Like I guess like what do you guys think? What are we doing here, right? Like what is the point of this? Considering that was banned in eighteen twenty four, doesn't come back into like circulation to like basically the 20th century. This book is gone for a long time. I mean, I've, I'm assuming it's banned because of the sex and the rape and like the, the consent issues. But I think the and real the celebration of all of that. Is, yeah. It, it, you could interpret it as such. Yeah. But I think the real power that keeps it going is just the sense of how people manipulate other people yes. and the sense of how is it done? I think there's a part of all of our brains that's like, what, why, and how? Yeah, you know, that's just uh, curious at like looking, like picking up the rock and like seeing what's underneath um, a little bit. And I think that plays out really important that too because we have an example of someone who's so moral, right? Like she fights so hard, she really mm -hmm. does, and that's actually one of the reasons why her letters and her story is genuinely really difficult to read. Yeah. Not because I relate to her in any way, but because you really see someone who's like, I guess I'll die. I well, see, gonna, and, and that's like that just goes to prove the, the Vamos point about like uh, Cecile will be easier yes. because it's just like introducing somebody to sex and being like this is the first time and it's, it's exciting and this and that is a very different thing from somebody who's already entrenched in their moral position. That's true. It's a different kind of conquest, although yeah. both of them are rape scenes. Yeah, he has to rape both of them, right? So it's it's still like even though they're like, yeah, that's part of the fun. You know, she's, you know, the Marquise's point is like, women love that. They love kind of having to have a pretext. Oh, I'm defending myself, but oh my God, you're raped. But these are full on rape scenes that he's writing to the Marquise, right? He's describing yeah. himself and he's like, wasn't this so great what I did? Um, well, and importantly, in the 88 movie, we don't have the second one with Michelle Pfeiffer with the La Présidente as a rape scene because two would be too much. That would make him a rapist, right? you know, and like, and, and there still needs to be some sense of, if not identification with this, not quite protagonist, but main character of the story. Right. Uh, there has to be some like leeway for mm -hmm. him, you know, and permissiveness. And you're like, oh, but he's like, he is raping Cecile, but look, now she's having orgasms, yeah. you know, and it's, it's this. Orgasms. Or orgasms? I'm pretty sure you said morgasms, but anyway, like say so, yeah. or orgasms. Or orgasms. So sometimes when a woman's having sex, she <laughs> really <laughs> enjoys it almost the way a man does, but like a differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is blowing my mind. I know. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I also think the longevity of it, and I mean, it, it's about. It's about subjects which people are always going to be interested in, like amorality um, and sex, it, sex and <laughs> manipulation and manipulate. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, it, it, it's about these You're subjects welcome. which, like, which um, we were discussing earlier. Like, would always get to the most read story on any news website that you're getting to. It's like, but especially you know, the guardians. Yeah, on the <laughs> yeah on the Guardian, if it was like you know um, 
my cousin, the Marquis, sent me love letters and I ended up sleeping with him, even though I knew I shouldn't, you'd be like, yeah, I'll yeah. click on that article. And I think that, you know, that in terms of its longevity, that's part of it. It's also about the upper classes. It's also kind of stood the test of time. It's like in, in the sense that it's really old and about sex. And we're like, oh my God, like something that you know was you written. love reading about old sex. But no, but seriously, like, you know, be. something which was written <laughs> in the 18th century. And you're like, wow, they were really having sex then. And yeah. they like, they had all of these same emotions that we have now, which was completely eclipsed i think during the like the victorian period like or during the 19th century like there there was definitely a sense of um a greater kind of like you know stamp down on you know immorality and stuff in the 19th century and anyway so it, it's really exciting to look at something from a long time ago which is about sex and then also has this like at the heart as i keep saying a very basic plot line yeah. which is bad person turned good by his own bad deeds and to add yeah. to that, oh, oh i was just gonna say no it like I, I think the importance of eras and like ethics from or morality from these particular eras can't be overlooked because it's like okay louis 14 fucked mm-hmm. louis 15 fucked Louis the Sixteenth took some convincing. Eventually, fucked. Right. Uh, Napoleon the First, totally fucked. Napoleon the Third, we've learned recently, fucked one of Chris's ancestors. Um, let's return to that at some point <laughs> in this podcast. This is also a time, and I think that one of the things, the reason why this book also has like resonance is that it's obviously using a very old-fashioned form, right? Like everyone's writing letters, but it's tapping into really universal emotions, right? Mm. And this had extra importance at the time because this is when rationalism is becoming more and more of like a philosophical view that people are adhering to and the sense that human emotion and kind of human whimsy can be controlled by rationale. Mm. And I think we still talk about that, right? We still talk about what I should do versus what I'm compelled to do. right? And what this book shows is a lot of people who have absolutely no self-control but you kind of, and then when they lose self-control, there's a lot of empathy you kind of have for them, even though Valmont is disgusting, right? He really is. In, it's clear in the book, and actually in the movie adaptations, of course, that he really loves Michelle Pfeiffer, la présidente. That's a huge sacrifice he makes, and it's so stupid that he gives her up. He gives her up for his reputation. He gives her up because the Marquise is pushing him. But and- also there's no possible future for them. It's not like Cruel Intentions where you're just like, just go with the one that you love. And like your teenagers. That's what I think is really interesting. The headmaster's daughter, Ryan Philippi, who's going to stay with her for a whole year. She wrote an article about how she was going to stay a virgin. I mean, one year. You can do it. You can hide it for a year. Nine months is a school year. Come on. Nine months she's pregnant. (laughs) Listen, you know, points were made. but 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 it is, I think, really important to, I think it's, I think there's something about the letters in particular where we really do see every everyone being really vulnerable. Mm. They would never say these things to other people, right? But because the way that letters are written are, is really important, there's so many points in the book where people critique other people's letter writing style. Mm. A constant refrain is, God, Cecile is terrible at writing letters. She's such a fucking idiot. And at some point, <laughs> Valmont takes over and he starts writing her letters. And Dulcine is like, yeah, her letters have really changed. They're a lot more like sophisticated and blah, blah, blah. Like it's really important. They feel like she wasn't writing them, but they were written on her back while she was naked. There was, <laughs> which, okay. I, actually, iconic scene in movies and in the book is mm. when Venmal writes a letter using Emily, who's fucking at the time, as a table upon which to write 
and it's a letter to the, that crazy adult, right? And there's lots of like double entendres in the letter in French and in English that are is like really amusing. Um, but it's it's also it's kind of a celebration of craft. It's a way to kind of tap into the things that we all know that we do, right? The things that we do that we know are foolish and we look back on them when we're in love and we're like, why did I do that? Um, so we get to see people being vulnerable, even though they're not, they would never let themselves be vulnerable. And that vulnerability becomes weaponized, right? Yeah. Those letters, when they're released and when they're revealed, spell their downfall. Hmm. And so the, the letters being used is incredible as a plot construct. Yeah. But somehow, again, not somehow, but he's really tapping into something that we still talk about, right? We still want to be rational. We still want to ascribe our motives, the things that we do, things that people do to, well, X, Y, Z happened, and then this. Yeah. But often we just do shit because we feel bad or we feel good or whatever, right? Yeah. And as you're saying this, it makes me wonder, like, if the enduring appeal of the book is just enjoying seeing villains suffer. You know, and knowing that they're well, going actually, to no. I, so I, I wanted to to come in mm. on that, and and this is a complicated point, but I think that there's something about like the idea of like the hatred of women, yes. like as a um, as a as a general sense that I think that you know then maybe to a degree as now, like almost anything that women do like they get blamed in a way which is sort of like out of all proportion mm -hmm. to you know if a man did the same thing as the barbie movie as the, as eloquently the, points as, out as, as, as the barbie movie eloquently points out i didn't like the barbie movie but anyway we didn't need to get into that but i mean um of course we didn't that's what i'm here for <laughs> yeah and, and i think there's an interesting degree in this to which like you've got the aside was mentioning like you know um the, the sort of the main villain of the piece like the the marquise like she's um she's getting away with as much as she possibly can and uh, you know as as a woman and you know her downfall is an inevitable one not because maybe because of what she's done but just by dint of her gender yeah. uh, that she's all this is always going to be her end uh, as you've said it has also been for the other women in the mm -hmm. in the thing they all end up worse off than when they started but at least she's getting away with whatever she wants to yeah. when she as she can and, and like, but to add to that to, to complicate it all three of the women they are punished but their downfalls they trust men yeah some of the Marquis trusts Van Mol to not release her letters, right? The president <clears throat> trusts Van Mol to not to not do what he does, and Cecile, of course, trusts Donzini and Van Mol because she she initially distrusts Van Mol when he's yeah. at the house and he tries first to have sex with her and she's like, "No, I don't want this." He immediately writes to Donzini, he's like. I'm trying to get you your letters, but your girlfriend's kind of stupid. But I'm not sure that's men in general because Donsini is generally trustworthy. He's Hashtag not, not all men. He's wishy-washy and he has no backbone. Well, yeah, but that's not untrustworthy. That's just gross. But I'm just saying that's that, just Keanu Reeves. That is just Keanu Reeves. <laughs> but in the but in the book, there are no men who are even somewhat worthwhile. And yeah. that's why, again, the motive of this book is so interesting to me. He does all the things that I think the structure demands of the time. But actually, the men are worthless. And he's very clear about how they're worthless. So it's the point, just look at what men do to women. 
but at the, explicitly that's not the point right explicitly the point is based on like what comes at the beginning and that's right. why but this book is interesting to me because it seems like it's a book at war with itself much yeah. like the characters within the book and i know that wasn't by de- i don't think that's by design i write again i closed trying to write a book that's a bestseller and it works <laughs> okay. um, right like his 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 big quote about what he wanted to do with this book was that was he, a quote make a lot of money <laughs> and quote <laughs> well basically because the quote is uh a book that would quote make a new departure which would create some stir in the world and continue to do so after I had gone from it, which he succeeded at, I would argue. Good fan. Hey, we're here. We're here. We're reading it. We're talking about it. Um, I want to say, like, it's a book that I think is worth reading. It's inherently dissatisfying, but I think that's important. I think it's dissatisfying because we as contemporary readers are looking for a different type of moral than the one that's being offered by the preface and by the editor or the publisher's note. But it's not clear that the author is even aligned with that message either. Mm. And there's so many conflicts. Even though the author wrote both of those. Exactly, exactly. But when you think about the author's, I think, desire for, like, leaning towards feminism, in a way, like, I mean, this is really, Mm. like, you know, off-grid. Who knows if this is true? I kind of think of the author and Van Mul being very similar. Like, men who maybe do kind of want to do something good, right? Who have an inkling of, like, what it would mean to be genuine. But... In Van Mol's case, of course, it, it takes on kind of fictional um, dimensions. He has this duel and he really can't. I don't think that it's that wishy-washiness, but it's like he has a certain idea of patriarchy, but the book he produces is successful because it it fulfills every single stereotype and cliche about women and what yeah. women's role should be within kind of a sexual world. And it is, again, condemning libertines, right? Because the book that he mentioned right. that all the characters make fun of is the book that has like this innocent love story. But one could argue as well that maybe the reason, the maybe it's important that they all fail and they all have such tragic endings because the yeah. book that they make fun of, maybe that's supposed to be for us as a reader. The lesson is like, that's the kind of love story you should want, right? I uh, think the moral of this story is that men who are like, I love women should be inherently distrusted. Absolutely. And now okay. it's time for our favorite segment. Marry, fuck, kill. Here are my three categories. Marry, fuck, kill. Someone who will love you and be faithful forever, but you'll never be able to love them as much. So la présidente. Someone whom you'll like a lot, shares, shares your values, but fidelity is not confirmed. That all, when he actually loves you. Um, someone who has just left a strict institution of some sort, like boarding school or nunnery, um, and adores you, but has zero experience of basically anything. So we're thinking like a Cecile or a Donsony character. So just to recap, we either have someone who's going to love you forever, but you'll never be able to match their level of adoration. Someone who you'll like a lot, shares a lot of things with you, but they're not going to be faithful. Um, And actually they might hurt you really badly, but God, what a great person, right? Um, And someone who has just left a nunnery or a convent. (laughs) Yeah, your recap was longer than the <laughs> initial list. Oh god, this is I feel <laughs> I this is gonna it. reveal quite a lot about like... no, this is this is all a response to the Dylan Thomas, I think it's Dylan Thomas, let the more loving one be me. Oh. Um uh, I love that sentiment, but I don't want to be that person. <laughs> and I will say also that with these three, with the exception of one of it's not an easy one for me. I don't have like a ready answer. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's uh sorry, it's Auden. Um um if 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 equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Again, beautiful sentiment, but I don't want to be that person. I want to be <laughs> loved so much. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm marrying like I'm going in total order that you presented them in. I like 
kill the person from the convent. They're innocent. They won't know what's happening. They'll just be dead and going to God that they believe in. Perfect. Um, I will fuck the person who likes me a lot and is not faithful because yeah, we're just fucking. I don't care at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously marrying the one who totally adores me, even if I adore them slightly less. I'm going to have to write a poem that's let the more loving one be the other person. I think that I personally don't really want to be adored that much. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. a, um, there are I, different people. I forget that sometimes. I, I feel like that's a lie. Well, it's not. Um, Prove it. <laughs> uh, I don't know how. Prove it. Shh. Uh, as it is, <laughs> what are your sources? I definitely look. I would not want to be in a relationship in that way in which I thought that I was the unequal partner of this person, kind of like loving me way, way more like that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sit well with me. Um, because also I just don't think I could love somebody like that properly. And so I, I, I want the, the person who's, I would marry the person who is sort of like more, I'm more uncertain about, Mm -hmm. because I think that encourages you to be a better person and encourages you to be kind of like, you know, you're always there trying to win their affection. And that's a far more interesting relationship for me than just somebody who just loves you without question. So I would marry them. That sounds exhausting. To me, that's way more exciting in terms of like living a life. So so you marry the person who you like a lot, but you're not really sure about fidelity. Yeah. Okay, got you. And who would you kill? The convent person? Uh, No, I'd I'd, uh, fuck the convent person from uh, from the kind of whole... I mean, in my mind, it's Uma Thurman, obviously. So So I'm sorry, you're killing the person who loves you without question? Yeah, absolutely. There's something really wrong with you. These answers can be revelatory because I... So I'm... That's really messed up! I I mean, yeah, I, I mean... But half, maybe it is. But. <laughs> um, so I, so I it's believe- literally the Groucho Marx. I wouldn't want to be a part of Good Club. I ah, kind of. <laughs> okay, um, I'm sorry. Enough. So, again, revealing of our characters. Um, I would kill the person who I like and shares my values, but fidelity is not confirmed. I can't deal with that uncertainty. I want to. The thing is. Initially, I wanted to say I would fuck them. I know myself too well. If I really like them and I really want to be with them and I was never really sure, I wouldn't be well. I wouldn't be comfortable. I wouldn't be secure. That is not a relationship that I can handle. I mean, I've been in those relationships. The thing is that, yeah, you're not comfortable. You're not secure. That's why you're fucking them and not marrying them. I know. But, but the I thing don't... is, that's when I do some of my best work. <laughs> no, I think for me at this point, it's like I'm more, I've got so many things that up, like otherwise that make me a nervous wreck. I got to kill you. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I understand it. I would a hundred percent marry the person who's faithful to me forever and loves me. I do want to be adored. I want to be adored so much that I never question it. But you'll never love them as much as they. But they're not bothered by it. Yeah, but let the more loving one be me. (laughs) You know, I'm not awning. It's it's in the instruction. I'm not quite that. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. I never said William holds an audit. I, I, I realized I don't actually know his first two. <laughs> I was like, impressive. <laughs> I, I don't fucking know. William Holden. Yeah, yeah, like, probably. Prove it. Prove it. 
I want to be adored for everything I do. And I just wanted to be like, okay, that I'm not going to fool because I'm just not going to love you as much. And then I yeah, got see, I from the so... Okay, sorry. Elaborate on that. Oh, because well, because because uh, I have to have someone I'm going to fuck, and I already <laughs> use my other two letters. Then by default, I'm going to fuck the person's memory, and maybe I will teach them. Maybe I'm going to maybe I'll feel good about myself, right? And all the ways that I don't feel good about myself because the person who adores me, I don't adore them the same way. I'm doing a service to the yeah. person from the memory. A mutual friend of ours does constantly bring up the question to me, like, would it not be exciting? to have sex with a virgin mm. and uh, just like see their excitement. And like, yes, if you take out all of the other factors yeah. that would have to surround that. Exactly. Uh, in the circumstance. But uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm still just like absolutely gobsmacked by the fact that Chris doesn't want to be adored and doesn't like would kill the person who adores him. Think I mean, that, that. that does sound a bit unfair, but I mean, like, it's not the person who adores me. It's the kind of, like, the concept, the concept yeah. of, of that. Adoration. You know when you abstract people? <laughs> In any form, adoration sounds great to me. I'm like, bring it on more. I want to be worshipped. I want to be idolized. I, that's it it's like like let the more loving one be me it's like what you want the other person to be like i have compromised with you no i want them to be like you're the prize let me be the you know I, let me be it's less poetic but it's more my my speed <laughs> let me be the affectionate one who loves you let you be the one who's obsessed <laughs> with me let me the, be the surprise praline cream hello <laughs> let the right one in and not the exact like weird caramel whatever that hurts right. your jaw not me not me and i want you to fall apart every time you but say i don't want to say like i would fuck that person because that sounds kind of like i'm just abusing that as a relationship mm -hmm. so i think that's why you know it's the the idea of the the game but also i don't know like um yeah, you, I, you really want to just be adored. It's, it, it makes a relationship incredibly... Like, it, it would get boring so quickly because you don't have to improve. You don't have to... You could, you know, you just sit back and, like, everything is nice for you and, like, it's... Nice that sounds like a good relationship. Sorry? In every other part of my life, I feel like I have to strive and I have to work and I have to get better and better. How nice would it be if the person I'm with romantically just, like, loves me the way that I am. But I think that you say every other part of your life, but I think that like romance is the most important part of your life. Yeah, and I'm like, but I'm saying, but what if I was in a romantic relationship where the other person just was like, you're great. I love you. I'm not going to abuse them. I love them too. But I want them. And it's not that they just like stand, like their whole life is that they sit around and just like watch me adoringly. They have their own stuff too. But I just want to feel super comfortable that every time I'm with this person, they love me. No questions asked. I cannot be in a full relationship with someone where I'm constantly questioning whether or not they like me. Yeah, I'm working hard, but fuck, I'm working hard with you too? Bitch, I'm employed. <laughs> Look, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The best relationship is where each person thinks that they've gotten the better deal. I love that. Yes. And that was whatever the fuck our podcast is called. <laughs> <laughs>